Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Hello everyone. For this fifth episode, we have two guests to help us understand machine learning in air. The podcast is hosted by me, Ulrich Stavbull. And I'm Ching Ding. Hello and welcome. Our first guest was our very second guest in the podcast, Lindsay Cowell from UT Southwestern USA. Hello, Lindsay. Nice to have you back. Hi, thank you for inviting me back. Lindsay, you are a biomathematician and associate professor in the Department of Population and Data Sciences. What is it that fascinates you about the adaptive immune receptors? Uh, several things, I would say, really drew me into this area of research. Um, one being the um, rapid adaptation that is observed, particularly with um, B-cell receptors and antibodies through affinity maturation. I think it's one example um, in the world of uh, rapid adaptation, which I find very interesting. Um, also, this the way in which the immune system has solved this problem where you can't anticipate what antigens the immune system might be required to respond to over the course of an individual's lifetime. And even if you could, it would be impossible to encode a, a distinct receptor for every possible antigen in a finite-sized genome. So that's a very interesting um, evolutionary challenge that's been solved in different ways in different organisms. But of course, in jawed vertebrates, we have BDJ recombination. Um, so that I think also is uh, very fascinating. And then, you know, not specific to repertoires, but just the immune system in general. Um, it's a system in our body that has to function as a coherent whole, but exists really as individual cells, right? It's not a tissue or an organ that's spatially co-located. Um, they're moving throughout our body and there have to be particular ways in which the cells are regulated to interact in specific ways spatially. So with germinal center reactions, for example. Um, and so just overall, I have always found this to be uh, a very fascinating system. Our second guest is Victor Greif from University of Oslo in Norway, where he is the head of Laboratory for Computational and Systems Immunology at the Department of Immunology. Hello, Victor. Hi, thanks for having me. Also for you, so why AIR? What's so fascinating? I think it's very similar to what Lindsay said. Um, adaptive immune receptor repertoires are, we can regard them as natural diagnostics and therapeutics. And I think, and they respond to, you know, diseases and infections before clinical symptoms arise. They are very specific. Um, uh, and um, 
And I think it's very interesting, how can they be so specific given their broad diversity also? And um, how does this specificity arise? Uh, how does, um, but then sometimes problems arise, you know, autoimmunity, um, sometimes um, cancer arises, so then the adaptive immune system breaks down. So how is this all regulated? I think that's very interesting. And then how can we use immune, immune receptors for, um, for uh, the clinical applications? So for diagnostics and also making antibodies and T-cell receptor therapeutics, I think, This has always fascinated me, even from, from high school on. And then throughout my grad school and postdoc has always been about antibodies and sometimes T-cell receptors. But antibodies are closer to my heart, I have to say. Thank you. Um, I guess before we go into a discussion of machine learning in air um, within the clinic, uh, maybe you can, both of you can give us a bit of your opinion of how machine learning is beneficial for the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. So the question was, how can it be useful for the clinical application? Was that Or just in, in general, in terms of how machine learning can be used for air? So this is a very good question, but also a very broad question. So um, as Lindsay and I just pointed out, we have um, immune receptor repertoires are very diverse. Um, so, the f so the potential space is very high dimensional and there is very little overlap across individuals. And machine learning um, is all about finding patterns that can be linked to some kind of outcome. And, so, and for example, outcome can be um, a disease prediction or binding prediction, for example, which we always call in the repertoire field repertoire-based prediction for um, immune status prediction or um, binding prediction, which we call sequence-based prediction. There are other terms, but I think these are the uh, common terms. And um, the difficulty, I think, um, or why we use machine learning is because it um, currently remains um, a bit unclear what are the actual immune signals or patterns within the repertoire that link um, the repertoire to to this outcome, so to disease, infection, or binding. And um, the good thing about machine learning is that we can can just um, put all these data into a machine learning method and it will learn these implicitly and then um, perform a prediction. And I think we can talk also later about how can we um, try maybe using interpretability methods and um, feature encoding. How can we learn about what these actual um, patterns are? Um, yeah, but I think machine learning is very useful because the space is so high dimensional. And so it's almost a perfect machine learning problem since we as um, We're trying to find this, um, you know, needle in a needle stack. We don't know how the needle looks like, um, and machine learning can try to um, extrapolate uh, towards towards a, towards a map between the underlying signal and the outcome that we want to predict. Yeah, exactly. I agree completely. It's because the the patterns we're seeking are very complicated. And I love the analogy, you know, you hear people say needle in a haystack. And I've always said, no, it's a needle in a needle stack. So I, I love that Victor just used that analogy. I think that's perfect in this case. 
So what are the methods that you then apply to to find this needle in a needle stack? So um, there are a lot of methods that one can use. Um, I could give a list right now. So for example, for um, immune status prediction, where one uses the set of receptors or the repertoire for predicting a person's um, disease or infection status or health status. Um, people um, sometimes use the entire sequence for uh, prediction or they subdivide sequences into little k-mers and then a small k-mers and then use those features for prediction and then so this is the feature encoding and then they use different machine learning methods such as uh, you know support vector machine random forest uh, or deep learning approaches to then link these um, encodings to uh, to the label of the repertoire be it health or disease or different disease states for example um, and then um, so this has been used and there have also um, not strictly machine learning methods but people have also used generation probability of immune receptors to find immune receptors that are that are um, enriched in diseased repertoires compared to the health um, healthy repertoires then sometimes people also add to their feature encoding physical chemical properties to kind of help the machine learning method to um, find features uh, or the relevant features um, that are linked to to um, to the label and um, people have also used multiple instance learning approaches so um, these are approaches where um, you um, assume that not all features are in one repertoire are important but only few of them are important and then you try to uh, link those few features to the outcome um, and then what has also recently come up is language modeling approaches especially as especially in the antibody field in order to um in order to link um, antibody sequence data, for example, to uh, somatic hypermutation or helping with structural modeling or um, also linking it to um, antigen binding, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just add, um, in addition to the specific feature encodings where one chooses features, as Richard, as uh, Victor mentioned, either K-mers or whatever biophysical chemical motifs, also some are using representational learning where you don't, as the human, um, specify what the features are, but you apply machine learning to learn a representation, which is then input into downstream um models that learn the associations within those representations with labels. Those are harder to interpret. <laughs> so my group hasn't used those, but others are using those to, you know, good effect. And what one should say is that many groups use many different methods and um, but what remains, I think, unclear for the field so far is what are the best methods for a given prediction problem absolutely and i think for that we need um larger scale benchmarking studies with for example simulated data absolutely also. yes so how do you simulate data for a particular disease <laughs> that's a loaded question i would say <laughs> um 
So, uh, so there are different simulation tools, such as, for example, um, ImmuneSim, Igo, Olga. Um, so these are simulation suits that can be used to um, simulate native repertoires. And then how one usually um, simulates an immune state is that one implants um, certain K-MER signals or entire sequences into a repertoire data set. Uh, yeah, and then um, these can have different witness rates or so different frequencies in the repertoire. And then one tries, for example, to find out at which um, frequency of the signal um, can one still uh, differentiate um, signal implanted samples from non-signal implanted samples, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's more about understanding the machine learning model rather than trying to use simulated data to understand reality yes, of the world. Yes, exactly. Yes. So um, the good thing about simulations is, is that one can simulate a broad array of a broad array of um, uh, scenarios. And the hope is that within this explored simulated space, we um, we include the uh, native experimental or the biological space also. But as we said in the beginning, we don't really know how this looks like. That's why um, within this simulated space, we just need to be broad enough with respect to how those immune signals that we implant are, in, are encoded and at what frequency, such that in the future, when um, large-scale experimental data comes that is suitable for benchmarking machine learning methods, we already know a bit um, uh, which machine learning methods are best for a given data type. And once we have also known more, uh, once we know more about those um, uh, motifs that are linked to disease that is unbinding, um, we, can, we can then go back and then refine also our simulations, I think. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, a, it's like a feedback cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Maybe we can take a step back. Um, uh, going to one of the uh, initial questions uh, uh, is what kind of clinical applications of machine learning for these air sequences can be possible? If you can give us one example that you're most passionate about right now. Oh, only one example? <laughs> There's so many good ones, I think, although we're still sort of figuring that out. But... Uh... I would say diagnostics. Okay. And then how, I guess, yeah. Can you give us an example of a model that's being used? Um, so I think people are, so my group and multiple others are looking in the space of cancer diagnosis, um, which has multiple applications. Um, there are other areas, I think autoimmune disease. Um, I don't know, Victor, maybe you know of others, maybe infectious disease, um yeah probably yeah yeah i mean there are i mean uh, the nice thing is that data sets are um, really increasing now in size also um because of reduced costs and people really understand the importance of creating large-scale data sets mm -hmm. because for example in our immune ml um manuscript we showed that once you go uh, below a certain sample threshold, you almost don't see the signal anymore. And only once you reach a certain, you know, repertoire size and data set size, you can actually you are actually able to classify um, health versus disease, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. 
So size is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And for many clinical areas, that's a major limitation because the, if the disease itself is relatively rare, um, you know, we're in the process now of trying to build large multi-site studies where you have to recruit patients from, you know, a relatively large number of different um you know, healthcare institutions to really hit the sample sizes needed. And then another clinical application that I'm, of course, very interested in is um, uh, monoclonal antibodies. So I just came back for from uh, PEX Boston, so the Protein Engineering Conference in Boston, and there for the first time was a two-day session on machine learning for antibody oh, design. Wow. That, that was there for the first time and so and people were really interested in it using language models and everything to optimize antibodies for developability um, affinity target specificity and more and more of the big companies are also entering the space now recruiting people so people really see the value in using machine learning to optimize um, biotherapeutics yeah I still have a question to this to sample size. So clearly, the number of patients that they put into a study matters, but um, the amount of blood that you can draw is limited. And clearly, if we draw, I don't know, five, ten milliliters from an adult, it's a very small sample compared to to all T or B cells that are in circulation. So. Do you have any idea how much blood one would need to take from one person at a given time to get a proper sequencing size? Let's call it that. I think this depends a lot on, is this acute phase disease? Is this chronic disease? Um, what tissue is affected by the disease and how much recirculation happens for that particular type of tissue? Um, I think it depends on, are you able to flow sort and focus on a particular lymphocyte subset that might be enriched? I think there's, and I also think that we don't yet know, <laughs> um, but, and I think there are still real questions about the extent to which the peripheral repertoire is reflective of disease in specific organs. I agree with Lindsay. So there are multiple studies um, recently being done that show that the peripheral repertoire does not overlap um, or there's a limited overlap with um, organ-specific repertoires. And, um, and of course, the big assumption is that there is sufficient disease signal in the peripheral repertoire that one can then pick up via sequencing and then via machine learning also. And... Um, Whether that is, and, and to what extent this is true, we will have to see in the future. Um, I We all hope that this is true, but since we don't really know how disease signals look like and how they are encoded in the repertoire, it's a bit hard to say how this really depends um, and how this is a function of disease and also maybe severity of disease and uh, yeah, things like that. Mm. I'd like to go back to the point about using air repertoires and for diagnosis. Um, 
we, we spoke with Tom Langerak a couple weeks ago about how he's looking at repertoires in CLL uh, for diagnostic and prognostic purposes um, in hematological malignancy, especially those in T and B cell spaces, um, using the air sequencing uh, really makes sense. Um, but then I was wondering in, in other diseases, non-CLL or non-hematological um, malignancies, are you seeing examples of... of uh, practice and use of machine learning to identify or uh, the repertoires that might be diagnostic or prognostic? Uh, to my knowledge, it's really hematologic malignancies are the only cases that have really made it all the way to the clinic. To my knowledge, everything else is still in the very early exploratory phase, um, either preclinical you know, using animal models or um, preclinical in the sense that you're um, tapped on to the back end of a clinical trial. <laughs> um, so there's no current use for clinical decision making that that I'm aware of. Um, maybe Victor knows of other studies. No, I agree. I mean, um, we should say, of course, that there is the landmark um, nature genetics study from Adaptive in 2017, which was to classify CMV status. Um, uh, and so this would be a virus. And um, But of course, um, we know that, for example, in autoimmunity, in autoimmunity, so for example, celiac disease, that the signal in the blood of gluten-specific T-cells, for example, is very, very low. And um, still we would like to pick this up via preparatory sequencing. So I think um, we need to better understand for which diseases it makes sense and for which diseases it might not make sense biologically. But for that, we need to biologically understand, I think, how the signal looks like. And for that, we might have to go to the organs where there is an enrichment of those cells, then map this back to the repertoire and then see when it makes sense and when doesn't it make sense, I think, yeah. So we, so I think I see a lot of people trying to use machine learning without wanting to understand the underlying biology. And I think this is a mistake. We need to have both in parallel. Yeah, we need to, we need, to we need domain knowledge in biology and domain knowledge. Of machine learning together uh, on equal footing yeah yeah i agree completely it's not only about getting high classification accuracies it really is about utilizing models that are interpretable so that we can understand the underlying signal that is being um on, uh, on which the model is making its classifications and understand what those mean for the biology and again just to re-emphasize what victor said about going to the organ in parallel with the blood and not just straight away going, going to blood. I think that's very important. Yeah. I was thinking uh, beyond hematological malignancies, infectious diseases and autoimmune diseases were the two second, I guess, medium hanging fruits. <laughs> um, it's interesting, Victor, that you bring up celiac. Uh, I worked on celiacs in the past and I would say out of all of the other autoimmune diseases, it's one of the nice model autoimmune diseases because we know the antigen, there's MHC restriction um, and uh, you can 
technically do a challenge in these patients, right? If they accidentally or intentionally um, eat some gluten, something that contains gluten. Um, and so it's it's interesting that you're talking about uh, the importance of, you know, previously you talked about the importance of timing. Um, and so I know from post-gluten challenge, you can, uh, the kind of gluten-specific T cells leave their tissue or, or wherever they are in the secondary lymph nodes, and you can measure them in the blood, um, at least capture that. So then, um, I guess, going to apply this machine learning, um, even though there's pretty, you know, in celiacs, there's a high MHC restriction, uh, do you think that, that machine learning could be a possible way of identifying patients who are more likely to develop celiacs in the future, who have a specific specific MHC or yeah, how, how would you envision the application? So I think um, a great application for um, repertoire-based diagnostics and prognosis uh, would be if, for example, we had um, a good predictor or classifier for um, for a gluten binding, for example, for, for T-cells, then we could just sequence a person's repertoire and then apply um, this classifier to the repertoire and then, then find the number of gluten-specific T-cells, for example, that are in the blood of this person. And then we could try to correlate on then via um, prospective studies, how does the number of or precursors for, for example, gluten-specific T-cells then um, uh, is correlated to um, future disease, for example. So I think we really need... Um, long-term studies also to correlate signal to clinical outcome. So, so I don't think this is the matter of the next one or two years, even if we have large-scale data set, even when we have large-scale data sets and good machine learning approaches, I think we need, we need longer-term clinical studies to really understand how the signal is correlated to clinical outcome. And I think this will be for the next decade or something because these things take time. Yeah especially for those slow-burning diseases like autoimmune diseases that don't just switch from on-off, but that are slowly developing over time. Absolutely. And we were talking earlier about the importance of understanding the underlying biology, not just having high classification accuracies. And I think key to that is exactly what Victor just mentioned, which is knowing what the specificity is of the receptors that are driving any uh, classification scores. Um, and I also think it's important to point out, and particularly with these slow-burning diseases, um, that we are probably not talking about one specificity, right? We're probably talking about a constellation in relative abundances. Um, and it may be that constellation that is, is important um, and may be driven by um, exposure history. And this is all, you know, um, how do you ever know enough about someone <laughs> to really start to understand that? Um, so I think these, these are the challenges. Completely agree, um, especially for the autoimmune diseases, right? For many of them, we don't even know the antigen. Only now we have seen those high profile papers for MS that maybe EBV might be involved. So it's, it's, it's a multi-epitope thing, as Lindsay said, a multi-antigen, multi-epitope. So it's really hard to deconvolve this um, from a machine learning and biological point of view. 
Absolutely. And and to that point about not knowing the antigen, um, you know, on the one hand side, taking a repertoire approach is a is a doorway in to a disease where you don't know the antigen and where, you know, in some cases, decades of trying to identify the antigen have failed. Um, and so maybe in the end, look, taking a repertoire um, approach doesn't result in a repertoire diagnostic, but it results in um, another mechanism by which we can ultimately identify the antigen, um, which would then also be a huge breakthrough. So how, how do you then validate such a machine learning model that you develop to identify um, epitopes, pathogens, or constellations of of T-cell receptors or, or what have you. So how, how do you do this? Or how can one envision to do this? Uh, 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 that's why I like my simulations because there <laughs> we know we know the ground truth. And with simulations, you can always validate because you know how the data has been generated, what, what signal is in the data and um, yeah, what signal should be recovered by the machine learning method. For biological data, of course, um, for example, it could be expressing then T cell receptors of which or antibodies of which you should of which you think they should be binding a certain antigen and then testing them whether they actually bind the target. But that is um, very very cumbersome and uh, yeah and potentially very unbiased because you can only look at a very small sample. So I think the I think this is one of the biggest bottlenecks of our um, research domain is valid biological validation of the of the machine learning approaches. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, to what Victor said, I think that experimental validation in parallel is critical. Um, so whether that's, you know, testing, you know, um, expressing a particular receptor that may have received a high score from a machine learning approach, testing for a cell that expresses it, um, its res responsiveness to a particular antigen in vitro. I think those kinds of studies are absolutely critical. Um, and then thinking more from a clinical biomarker um, approach, you know, typically, you know, there are, you know, maybe four phases of development for clinical biomarkers um, where you start with discovery in a particular tissue type of interest. Um, then you look for signal detection in a sample that can be collected by minimally invasive means, usually blood, not necessarily blood. Um, and then you start moving to prospective, large sample size prospective studies. Um, and so I think these kinds of large prospective studies are, you know, they're hard and expensive, um, but they're going to be absolutely um, critical. And, you know, you may start with um, case control studies where you're blinded to outcome. Um, and where you may have equal numbers of cases and controls, and you also know that you work in false positives. So there are a lot of diseases for which, um, you know, biomarkers fail because of false positives in the context of inflammatory conditions. So conditions of chronic inflammation are, are a, a, a sort of constant source of false positives in the space of immune diagnostics. But then ultimately to prospective studies where 
representation in your large sample of cases is similarly small to the representation of that disease in the population you ultimately want to uh, screen with your diagnostic um, so that you have accurate, you know, positive predictive value and negative um, predictive value um, statistics to, to really analyze. So just to reemphasize what uh, Victor said, you know, this is, we're definitely playing a long game here. You know, this is, um, the time to ultimately having something that can be reasonably deployed in the clinic is very, very long. Yeah. And just to add a bit to that also. So what we haven't talked much about is also potential confounding effects. Oh, yeah. um, so we know that, um, you know, age and MHC and um, sex and just simple batch effects, you know, technological effects can really change repertoires. And there's increasing interest in causal modeling. How can we, you know, disentangle those factors and how can we make repertoire diagnostics also more robust? And, um, and I think this is a current struggle also in study design. How do we design studies to really isolate those factors and um, not give them such a huge role that they might have right now in the data sets that, that we have already, although they're huge? But they might be um, confounded to some degree because people haven't really thought about all these factors. And now with all those biological studies coming out, finding that, you know, age can change repertoire, uh, sex can change repertoire and so on. We need to be much more careful about um, uh, how to design these studies for the future. So, it, yeah, as Lindsay says, this is really a long game. Yeah. And we really need a lot of experts from different fields to really make this robust. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A, a gap I keep seeing pop up over these various podcasts is, uh, you know, moving air or antibody repertoires uh, either into the clinic um, or uh, as a therapeutic or a diagnostic is is around the lack of clear understanding of specificity, the paratope epitope interface. Um, and, and I'm wondering, Victor, you brought up something really interesting where uh, same thing with Jake Glanville is maybe the repertoire of learning is, is to be in the, the bioengineering therapeutic side first. Like we, we really start learning that language of, of that paratope, epitope, uh, paratope and epitope space. Um, what do you think, where do you, like, what, what did you find most interesting in your recent PEGS meeting of, of these different? That's a, that's a very interesting question. So I think um, also for peritope-epitope interaction, which is, by the way, a sub-problem of antibody-antigen interaction. So it's a simpler problem of antibody-antigen binding prediction because a given antigen can have many different epitopes. And a, different, and a given antibody can have many different paratopes depending on the epitope. Same for T-cell receptor epitope binding, I think. Um, uh, is, uh, so the, um, also there, the problem is that we don't have a lot of data. So ideally, we would have large-scale data sets of structures, of co-crystal structures of antibody antigen, and also crystal structures of the of the antibody and antigen separate. And there are very, there's only a very limited number of those uh, structures. Um, even fewer for T TCR peptide MHC structures. So there are even fewer for those, only a hundred. And for antibody antigen, you have about a, a thousand now with COVID, a bit more maybe non-redundant structures. Um, 
So I think this is um, this is still a long way um, ahead. So we we still need a lot of work generating new data. But here again, I like to point out that. Um, we can use simulations to um, simulate antibody-antigen um, pairs or peritope-epitope pairs in order to understand which machine learning methods work well and which don't. And when once the data comes in the future, maybe in five, six, seven years, I don't know, we are then ready at least. Because I think what people don't understand, just because we have data doesn't mean we have um, the right machine learning method for this data. I think a lot of people from the maybe more biological field think once we have the data, we just we just click a button and then the prediction will you know arise correctly or something like that. No, we need to now start with the data that we have, simulated or experimental, um, so that we are ready when the data comes and that we not only then start once the data arrives. That would be a wrong strategy, I think, because uh, I think we all want... Um, higher specificity monoclonals and uh, TCRs against cancer, autoimmunity, infection. And um, and the faster, the better, I always say, right? Yeah. Um, well, I guess we're running out of time. So maybe one last uh, high-level question for both you, Lindsay and Victor is, uh, one can imagine that another application of uh, immune repertoires is personalized therapy. Um, how how do you think machine learning could help realize this? Yeah, so I, I don't um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I mean, I think for personalized therapy, one has to get at the interaction between multiple factors, um, and so that is the scale of that problem is huge and what the patterns would be are complex. So it lends itself straight away to um, machine learning or rather it's a problem that would require machine learning. Um, but I don't think we yet know enough about the pairs of interactions to start deploying in a really personalized setting. But I would just say, you know, one would need to have models that can make predictions on the basis of um MHC genotype, um, germline genes encoding um, antigen receptors, um, the self-peptidome that influences um, positive and negative selection, certainly in the case of, of T cells, um, for certain types of diseases and regions of the body, you know, there's um, a shaping of the repertoire through interaction with the microbiome um, that is been it's being shown more and more to have you know a, a really large um, influence, and so I think you know there are probably some diseases where you know a one-off, more simplified approach might be effective, but in general, I think that. Um, Ideally, we would start to have models that could really understand how these factors all interact to shape the targeting um, of a particular, you know, lymphocyte response and the extent to which it's, you know, um, a suppressive response versus an effector response and, and these, these kinds of things. Yeah, completely agree with Lindsay. And 
I would just like to add maybe um, one or two applications that I see is very exciting is, for example, um, vaccine profiling. So we could uh, think, for example, um, wouldn't it be great if we could screen a person's repertoire using air sequencing plus machine learning and then decide based on the profile that we get from this person whether this person needs maybe this year a certain vaccine or whether they can wait for example until next year you know or 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 how would we need to engineer a vaccines in order to boost more a certain antigen specific population within a given individual i mean that would be of course the holy grail i think for personalized um vaccine design and then from an antibody engineering point of view wouldn't it be great if we know maybe the antigen landscape of a given person and then if we could target engineer for that mutated antigen for that mutated virus for example that this person has a targeted monoclonal antibody with a given developability profile that stays a certain number of days within this uh, person uh, to really get rid of whatever this person wants to get rid of so i think that of course these are um you know nobel prize uh, yeah. things but i think this is where we would like to go in the very far future yeah yeah absolutely and i'll just tap on to that therapeutic cancer vaccines um, which are showing some success in the context of cancers with viral etiology. Um, but in the longer term, their application for cancers with non-viral etiology um, would be um, a, an important space. This brings us to the end of the fifth episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community, realized through support by the Antibody Society. You can find more information about the Society and the Air community on the website antibodysociety.org. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at onair at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag onair with two R's. All links and contact information are in the show notes. Thank you to Lindsay and Victor for joining us. We will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. This podcast is edited by Abul Aziz uh, of the always funny podcast Spout Lore. Thank you for listening to On Air.